This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bobink. Welcome to episode seven of Bobcast. I'm Andrew Smith. I'm Mark Scaturo. And I'm Caleb Castro. It's good to be with you again. Just a few quick notes before we begin today's discussion. If you like Bobcast, make sure to subscribe and write a five-star review. This helps people find us when they're looking for good theological podcasts. And speaking of good theological podcasts, Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. You can subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed and get not only Bobcast, but other great shows. Reformed Brotherhood, Fast God Stuff, Reformed Pilgrims, Distilling Theology, and more to come. Maybe you have a question for us because we're seminary students who say confusing things. Email us with your questions at bovcast at gmail.com. We might use your question in a future episode or bovbite. But enough about us, let's talk about Bov Inc. We begin today on page 11 of The Wonderful Works of God. And this son has come to us and has declared the father to us. This is where God is man's highest good. In the middle of this paragraph, we did not know God because of the fall and took no interest in the knowledge of his ways, but Christ caused us to know the father. And so this tells us Christ is revealer and redeemer here. So whoever sees him sees the father. Right. Bobby here continues, you know, he was not a philosopher, a scholar, or an artist, or any of the things that we talked about in man's highest good about what men go after, whether it be culture and society or art or philosophy. He is coming as God to reveal God, and it is through him that we get to have this relationship with the creator of the universe. Right. We are united to him. And he himself, he's the humble servant king. He came riding on a, a, a donkey to die that we would know the Father and exalt the Father. He's the only one that can come in his own name to reveal the Father. One of those refrains that you get all throughout the Gospels is he speaks with such authority. On what authority is he speaking? Well, he's speaking on his own because he is God. He is the second person of the Trinity, and he is here to reveal the Father to his people. And he does. As we get further along in that paragraph, he revealed God in his words, in his works, in his life, his death his person, and all that he was and did. He never said or did a thing except what he saw the Father doing. Which gets to active and passive obedience. Christ did everything he came to do. He did it the right way. He did it being fully God and fully man. His active obedience being his keeping of the law, his obedience to the law and keeping it on our behalf, and then his passive obedience and his suffering, bearing the penalty due for our sin. Just a little bit further down on citing John 3.16, uh, this this passage, John 3.16, beautiful passage that speaks about salvation, but its primary interest is telling us why Christ came. He, he came to reveal the Father. He came to point us in the knowledge of God, being God himself, to be reconciled with him so that we would believe and not perish, but have eternal life. You also see here this discussion of his name. You know, we hear the name Jesus Christ and we hear it so much, it, we really don't stop to think about, well, why is he called Jesus Christ? He receives the name of Jesus because he's 
a savior. You know, that goes back to the Hebrew word Yeshua. He is Christ because he is anointed of the father. He, he is our prophet, priest, and king. Those aren't merely just names like I'm Andrew and Caleb is Caleb and Mark is Mark. That Those names actually carry meaning to them. Those that then uh, place all their their trust and hope in uh, Jesus Christ, in in the work that he's done, the things that he's come to reveal about the Father. That's where we are able to then have true knowledge, uh, again, not just as creatures, but as children of God, knowing him as a good father. And Bob Inc. goes on to say this second to last paragraph here. Those then who accept and believe on him are given the right and are qualified to bear the name of children of God. Uh, They are born of God. They share the divine nature. They know God in the sight of Christ, his son. The statement here, he says, uh, sharing the divine nature. How are we to understand that? Is he saying that, I mean, Christians are divine? No. I would say no as well. We're talking about union with Christ. We share in Christ, the whole Christ, all the benefits of Christ that are are given to us. Christ is divine and we are united with Christ. And we are united by the spirit that he leaves, leaves us because we are in union with him. We share in the divine nature because the Holy Spirit indwells the believer. I think you guys already hit the nail on the head with that. It is what we call union. We're, we're sharing insofar as by the Holy Spirit, the church is united to him as a head to the body. As we're connected to the head who is now in heaven, he is by his spirit going and sanctifying us in this knowledge of God. We're, we're coming in knowing uh, God truly more and more, becoming conformed to the image of Christ. And uh, someday this process will be perfected. We'll, we'll have a knowledge of God that also sees him face to face. We'll have not just faith, but sight. Amen. We have seen the origin in Christ, but we also see now the second part, the knowledge of God differs from all other knowledge in the point of its object. So what's he getting at here? Well, really what he's getting at is that knowledge that we have about the world is is knowledge about creatures, right? All creatures point to knowledge of a creator. Like it all has to start from someplace, right? You always hear the, the stories about how Van Til would start every classroom drawing two circles on the board, the big one and then the small one under it, creator-creature distinction, and there's a gap between the two of them. Everything that we can learn about this world, about the created world, about the natural world, it points to the fact that there is a maker. Yeah. I mean, we think of that, the very word object here, you know, uh, that kind of clues us in. Like you were saying, the cre- uh, creator-creature distinction, our knowledge is not exhaustive. It's it's limited. It's subjective uh, as being, a, it, it's confined to how well we reason or how well we experience the world around us. But the knowledge of God, this rightly teaches us all things have to be understood in terms of God first. You see it introduced for the first time. He'll unpack this more in detail in chapter three, but the idea of God's revelation in nature, you kind of see a proto-presuppositionalism. Bovink was quite a bit of time before Van Til, but you can see the groundwork being laid that, that Van Til and others would build on later in that all knowledge, be it special revelation or general revelation, traces back to God. It's based on God, and without God, it's it can't be proper. Properly understood. The second sentence he says in this paragraph, a knowledge that doesn't have God as the object is uh, broad in scope. It revolves around the creature. It's limited to the temporal. It can never find out eternal things. We can only go so far uh, in our understanding. But you can read philosophy and even philosophy that is not in any way Christian, that doesn't in any way acknowledge God, and there's truth in it. Mm -hmm. You can read it and be like, oh, there's actually some good insights here. There's some 
wisdom here, but but it's limited. It, it can only go so far. The knowledge that we can learn, whether it be secular or Christian in this world, is slight, obscured, mingled with error, and besides is not valued highly. This is the statement that I think is money right here. The world is a concealment as well as a revelation of God. And he cites Romans 1, 20 through 23, and like the quintessential general revelation passage, in my mind at least. So I think it's worth reading here and just discussing mm-hmm. that. I'm reading from the ESV, talking about God, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they, these are pagans, knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. And that speaks volumes of what we see today, doesn't it? Yeah, in in all times. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what are the gods of our day? A lot of people might say they worship God. A lot of people say they don't worship God. Everybody worships something. Everybody's chasing after something. Everybody holds something as central, their highest good. You know, it could be money. It could be power. It could be sex. It could be you name it. Everybody's got something. How often is it in our day today where they say, I'm not religious. I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. All these things point to the fact that man is making these created things. They're putting them on the level of creator. And look at how much our philosophies are that way. Think about all the various things that people believe. And the object of these things have to be God in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the problem. The problem that we see here in Romans 1 is they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. It's the exchange of who they're going to value as creator that we see so rampant in society today. And I'm sure in society's past, I mean, sinners are sinners, regardless of what time you're looking at. In the same way, Colossians 3, 5, you know, Paul makes that statement, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. He sums it up with that which is covetousness. And he identifies covetousness as idolatry, this covetousness of desiring after anything but God. That is idolatry. Well, and covetousness is the root of all other sin. Mm -hmm. Every sin starts with a desire for something. Yeah. And as we were saying just a moment ago, this earthly creaturely knowledge that's detached from its its object, its creator, it's mingled with error. And that's again why Christ is so necessary here. This is what makes God known. This next paragraph here on page 12 where he says, the one who comes to the fore, Jesus Christ, is one who lets such other knowledge go. If he forsakes the earthly knowledge, instead he speaks of the knowledge of God. Right. He's telling us exactly what we need to know in order to have salvation, in order to have a relationship with God. That second sentence of that second paragraph, how can man know God, the infinite and incomprehensible? You know, he's making a distinction here between the knowledge of God and what is incomprehensible. You know, that which can't be grasped comprehended. We cannot capture God exhaustively to every single point. He he goes on, who can measure time or eternity but God? How do we capture the one who could live in unapproachable light? We can only know the knowledge of God insofar as what he reveals to us about himself. And that's what makes him the object. It's that accommodated knowledge, that baby talk. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I just think of the end of Job. Bobbing's whole litany of questions here that he goes through. How are you supposed to know the infinite incomprehensible, you know, who lives in an unapproachable light? How can such a one be known by man whose breath is in his nostrils and who is less than nothing and less than vanity? And he goes through all these things. And it's just like when you think about how great and how mighty our God is, how can it not but humble us? We think we're so smart, intelligent, and creative, and that we have an exhaustive and extensive life experience, all these, you know, qualifications for why we know what we're talking about, you know, but when, when it comes down to it, we know so little, you know, our, our, our knowledge is barely like a single grain of sand, you know, amidst a thousand beaches and 10,000 ocean floors. Even if we could have so much knowledge it still can't comprehend or measure up to God. And it should humble us. And it is to be supposed then that such a man, poor, weak, erring, and benighted, should know God, the high, holy, alone, wise, and almighty God. <laughs> like, oh, man. If you were feeling pretty good about yourself today, take a look at that. It is a great thing then. I mean, that shows how remarkable Christ's work is in this way. Absolutely. And that's exactly where Bavink goes. It is beyond our grasp, but Christ, who has seen the Father and declared him to us, speaks of it. So how can we know about it? Because we're told it in baby talk by the Son of God, by the second person of the Trinity, by the co-eternal Son of God. It's, it's just a remarkable thing of this transcendent creator God who's made himself closer than a friend by his son. You know, that's just beautiful. There's that buzzword. Oh, who's saying it now? Ding, ding. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. What right do we have to know God like this? What what right do we have to be treated so kindly for him to send his son to teach us to believe, to bring us the spirit and to make a way to be reconciled with the father that we've sinned against, that we wouldn't die, but live eternally. God is patient with us and loving. It, it, he's showing the character of the father here. Sure. I mean, we have no right to that. We have no claim to that. Not only are we created, so God owns us. God rules over us that way and that he created us. But we're also sinners. We've got two big strikes against us. We're creature, he's creator. And then we're sinners and he is holy. And yet, in his grace, he condescends. He reaches down. He not only reveals himself to us, but he saves us and redeems us. Absolutely. Well, the father gives us his son. He gives us Christ, who, who Bavink says in the middle of that paragraph at the bottom, of page 12, who he himself is the word, the perfect revelation of the Father, as he is, just so righteous and holy and full of grace and truth. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor reward us according to our iniquities. He gives it all to us. He lays it all out for us. Jump jump down to that last, uh, the last sentence here where he cites First uh, John 4, 19. Uh, we know him because he first knew us. We love him because he first loved us. And I, I think that just summarizes exactly what he means by saying object. This is the object of the knowledge of God. He first knew us. He first loved us. He's the object. He's the start. That'll do it for today's Bobcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. We hope you'll join us again next time. Until next time, remember to... I don't even know. <laughs> it's my pick. Till Zines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Bobcast. That's B-A-V-Cast. 
You can email us at bobcast at gmail.com. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Visit reformedpodcast.com or subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time. Thank you.